Here's your primer on Beef Boys, Baseball's End, Roger Angel and Super Pretzels, Williams Astadio and Mike Trout Hypotheticals, waiting for the perfect bat from a volcanic eruption. Ladies and gentlemen, the Effectively Wild Introduction. Hello and welcome to episode 2129 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Wouldn't you watch a Boris 4 reality show? Don't you wish there were a camera crew following the Boris 4 right now? That would be must-see TV for me. Really? I want to know what kinds of conversations are taking place between <laughs> Boris and each of the four among the Boris four. Uh-huh. I don't assume that they are in the same place, although if if this continues for much longer, maybe they will be because I know Scott Boris has his own training facilities and basically has said he can host his own spring training when that has come up before. So perhaps they will be ramping up together somewhere. And I wonder what kinds of conversations they're having right now. Like, do you think there's a a prisoner's dilemma sort of situation going on with the Boris Fort where yeah. they're like, we can't crack. We have to stay strong. Solidarity. If one of us takes some below market deal, then the teams will lower their offers for the rest of us, right? We all have right. to maintain our Boris Fourness. We we cannot splinter into Boris ones and twos or else we will lose our leverage. Yeah, I, I do wonder like how how they are thinking about each other. Does it break down on pitcher versus position player lines cleanly? Right. Or is everyone viewed as a a potential obstacle to getting your best contract? Because like if you're Cody Bellinger, right? Like you and you and Jordan Montgomery aren't up for the same job. Yeah. Right? Or even but, you and Matt Chapman, really. Right. Yeah. Right. But you might be up for the same payroll dollars, you know, yes. if there's a, sort of a constrained budget uh, in place. So, yeah, I do wonder about that. And if you're Snell and Montgomery, you yeah. might be up for the same job potentially. Yeah. Yeah. You know, do you start thinking about cutting somebody's brakes? You know, these are <laughs> questions we all want to ask. Do you want to yeah. come out with a strong pro the new pants stance you know like all kinds of things must be going through your head yeah they must be talking among each other right I they guess. must be sending texts behind boris's back like are we sure he knows what he's doing here i know he always gets his guys paid he's scott boris he has a heck of a track record but still are we sure do we want to be the guinea pigs here right <laughs> it must just be kind of uh, encouraging each other stay strong or yeah. have you heard anything any offers for you <laughs> any right. rumors surrounding you today you'd think it would be nice like to to buck each other up you know offer some positive reinforcement we're all in the same boat kind of thing except that maybe they are competing for limited space in someone else's boat so yeah they can't, can't turn on each other or the whole arrangement will fall apart I guess the good news for all of them is that this is hardly the first offseason where Boris has had multiple clients um, right. sort of in that upper echelon of free agent and and not even the the first offseason where there have been delays in getting some of them signed. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure he went in and was like, okay, here's how this is going to go. I'm not going to try to do a Scott Boris impression. I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not going to do it. But I'm sure that he was prepared for that conversation and sort of is anticipating the potential concern they might have about where they sit 
relative to one another in the market and and in terms of his attention. I mean, like, I think people probably know that Boris is, you know, he is but one man, but all of these guys have additional sort of agency representation at, at Boris Corp beyond him. I'm sure mm -hmm. he's paying particularly strong attention to these four, but, yeah. um, you know, they have sort of more regular points of contact, I'm sure. So uh, yeah. I bet it's I bet it's a little bit stressful. I think, though, you are overestimating, and I don't say this to knock any of these guys individually or really even the group as a collective, but, you know, like a lot of baseball players just aren't very interesting when it comes right <laughs> down to it. And so, like... I don't know. Would a would a reality show with all of them be good right now? Maybe, or maybe they're just like hanging out playing Fortnite. You know, you know, you don't know. You just yeah. don't know. I would rather watch the Boris Four documentary than the Boston Red Sox Netflix doc. Probably. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. That's controversial. Yeah. Fascinating. Or do you think Boris brings in former clients who really went down to the wire, like? Does he bring in Kyle Loesch to talk about mm. how in 2013 he signed with the Brewers on March 25th or whatever it was and he got a decent deal and he ended up having a very strong season for them? And Kyle Loesch is just like, stay strong, hold the line, don't cave. Yeah. I, I trusted in Scott. It worked out for me. You'll yeah. be the next Kyle Loesch. <laughs> I yeah. wonder. Because mm. yeah, he can point to previous clients. It's worked out well. Yeah. For, you know, it becomes a game of chicken at some point. Yeah. I mean, at, at a certain point, like, I would probably, hmm, do I believe what I'm about to say? Do I think this is true? Let's say it. And then we can, <laughs> I'm going to say it. And then we can, we can pick apart whether it's a reasonable statement or not. Okay. Like if I were um, Montgomery or Snell, I might feel uh, a little more, comfortable even though i'm sure it's stressful to not be signed because like just you're gonna you're gonna have starters go down man like you're mm -hmm. just they're just gonna be pitchers who go down during spring and it's gonna happen to a contender you know like we we've already seen you know kodai senga like get, mm -hmm. get banged up and so if only because the circumstances of pitching might force the question. Maybe they feel a little more assured. Does that mm -hmm. seem right? I don't know, Ben. Don't know. Some sense putting to it me. out there yeah. as a putting sure. it out there as a thought to think, you know? Mm. Yeah, because they're only if you're a position player, now Bellinger can play more than one position at least, sure. but still you survey the league and you say, okay, yeah. this contender or this many right. teams that are likely to contend or are likely to spend on a player of my caliber, there are only so many that might theoretically right. have a vacancy. Whereas yeah, if you're a pitcher, not that you're making voodoo dolls or anything and sticking pins in people and saying, I hope they get hurt so that I can get a chance. But yeah, just playing the odds. Uh, there are many more spots potentially on a roster for a yeah. starting pitcher. So anything could happen. Anyway, yeah. just I'd love to know the back channel communications oh, among yeah. the Boris Four. You know, are there alliances? <laughs> are they having to like keep someone in line so that they don't cave? What sort of reinforcement? Enforcement reassurance does yeah. Scott Boris offer. I'd love to have a, a behind-the-scenes all-access pass to the communications and the negotiations among them all. All right. Yeah. One player who did sign, though not with an MLB team, is Hyunjin Ryu. Yeah. Now, Hyunjin Ryu is going back to Korea, going back to the KBO and his old team, the Hanwha Eagles, and is presumably going to end his career there, sort of like Shinsu Chu did and still is. And I bring this up 
mostly because he signed sort of an interesting contract. We have talked in the past about will teams try to and have teams already tried to push the envelope when it comes to skirting the CBT and Mm -hmm. the CBA and artificially adding more years to deals, right, to try to lower the tax hit. And we've seen some that maybe could kind of be argued that they were trending in that direction, or at least we've seen some speculation or reports that so-and-so was considering. Maybe the Padres were discussing offering an extra long deal to Aaron Judge. I think Matt Gelb reported at one point that the Phillies had talked internally about offering like a 20-year deal to Bryce Harper. I guess that would have made him a Philly for life. He would have been happy. But but. No one has really tested the league to see if they could get away with it and done the NHL style, the devil's Ilya Kovalchuk kind of contract that's just artificially long, lots of years tacked on to the point where MLB in this case would have to step in or would be likely to and say, we see what you're doing here. Yeah. that. That is basically what happened with Hyunjin Ryu, and his team is not even trying to hide it, which is interesting. I was uh, corresponding a bit with a Korean baseball journalist Ji Ho Yu, who joined me on episode 2104 and was reporting on Hyunjin Ryu's new deal. And it's a record deal. It's 17 billion won. That's about 12.8 million U.S. dollars. It makes him the highest paid player in South Korea. Korea, and they made it an eight-year deal. Now, Ryu turns 37 next month, so (laughs) that would take him to quite old, right? That would surpass the— By baseball standards. By baseball baseball standards, standards, of course. Baseball standards. (laughs) If he were to pitch through the completion of that contract, he would be the oldest KBO player ever, and sort of suspicious, sort of fishy, and— Initially, they were planning on offering him a four-year deal, and then they just made it eight instead, and they basically owned up to the fact that they did that because it enables them to lower the cap hit. They, they do have an actual cap in the KBO. And so they basically just said that that's what they were doing. Jiho tweeted that the Eagles admitted that they had the salary cap in mind when they spread that out. KBO's cap is about 8.6 million, and the Eagles had about 2.1 million. This is US dollars in cap space. And so, with a four year deal at the same total, they would have exceeded the cap by more than 1 million. And instead, they fit below it because they just added on some years. And I was kind of curious, can they do that? Can they get away with it? So I I messaged Jiho Yu and I I said, couldn't they get in trouble for that? And he said, not in this league. The history of the cap is just so short that I don't think anyone would have even thought of this possibility. And frankly, no one else would warrant this kind of cap maneuvering Hmm. like Ryu. So this was just like the cap was set for the the 2023 to 25 period, and it was 120% of the average of the combined annual salaries of the 40 highest paid players on each club for the 2021 and 2022 seasons, excluding rookies and foreign players. So it's a, a fairly recent 
addition. And so maybe they just found a loophole that hadn't been closed here. But I thought it was interesting that they just kind of yeah. owned up to it. And we're like, yeah, that's what we did here. <laughs> so you have to be vigilant, I guess, if you're leagues. Not that I particularly mm. care, but yeah, you know, if, say, if you're the mm. league <laughs> that wants to maintain these uh, strict either actual caps or soft caps and, and be wary of teams trying to circumvent them, they will do that. So you got to keep an eye on those uh, tricky teams. They're going to try to get around those limits. Eh, or you could take a little nap instead, you know, or you like, could. you sure. know, one, one, one or the other, you could instead decide, I'm going to take a little nap uh, and decide <laughs> not to care about that because mm-hmm. players should get paid some money. I don't know. Paid to take a sure. Nap. Okay. All right. And then another little follow up here. We've talked a couple times about the psychology of umpires. We did an episode a couple years ago, episode 1715, where we talked about decision fatigue and Mm. umpires. Do they get less accurate as an inning wears on because they just have to make so many calls? And is it better for them to have a break? And are they more accurate after that break? And then we also did a listener email, episode 2018, where listener Jason asked about, are the Yankees getting some benefit from umpires because Aaron Boone is constantly yelling at them yeah. <laughs> and, and getting ejected all the time? And he cited some data, some umpire scorecards data. The Yankees had had some calls go their way at the time that he emailed me. And so he was wondering if there was kind of a connection there. And I think I mentioned that when I was an intern for the Yankees and we were just discovering framing, it was a theory that the Braves at the time were getting that kind of advantage from Bobby Cox constantly arguing with umpires and getting ejected because the Atlanta's catchers at the time graded really well and they weren't necessarily Jose Molina's, at least aesthetically speaking. And so there was some question of, is it just Bobby Cox just constantly hectoring these umpires and getting favorable calls? Well, I was alerted to a new study that came out this week thanks to at Ban Bunting on Twitter, who directed my attention to this. Don't ban bunting for hits, though. I like bunting for hits. Yeah. That's okay. It's a different kind of bunting. It's uh, much more fun. But there is a, a new study that just came out that looked at this very issue and came up with some compelling findings here. This was in the journal Psychological Science, and it had three authors. The title, Verbal Aggressions Against Major League Baseball Umpires Affect Their Decision-Making. And I guess that gives away the conclusion right in the title. But the abstract says, excessively criticizing a perceived unfair decision is considered to be common behavior among people seeking to restore fairness. However, the effectiveness of this strategy remains unclear. Using an ecological environment where excessive criticism is rampant, Major League Baseball, we assess the impact of verbal aggression on subsequent home plate umpire decision making during the 2010 to 2019 seasons. Results suggest a two-sided benefit of resorting to to verbal abuse. After being excessively criticized, home plate umpires were less likely to call strikes to batters from the complaining team and more prone to call strikes to batters on the opposing team. A series of additional analyses lead us to reject an alternative hypothesis, namely that umpires after ejecting the aggressor seek to compensate for the negative consequence brought on by the loss of a teammate. Rather, our findings support the hypothesis that under certain conditions, verbal aggression may offer an advantage to complainants. 
Now, I read the study. It's one of those long academic studies with lots of formulae and lots of very esoteric language that is uh, tough to penetrate, I would say, for a popular audience. But that's why I waited in and mm-hmm. I analyzed it for you and just to Service synthesize journalism. the results here. Yeah, just to translate it into language that people might understand. So it seems to have been constructed fairly well from what I can tell. So they used Fangraph's war as part of this study. You're welcome, studiers, researchers. Thank you. Thank and you. they looked up all the ejections and they separated the reason for the ejection. So they only looked at ejections that were specifically targeted at the home plate umpire or where the home plate umpire was involved. And they also looked at, was it an ejection about balls and strikes Or was it about some other decision that the home plate umpire made? Or was it unrelated to the home plate umpire? Maybe the home plate umpire did the ejecting, but it was about a fight between players, something like that. So they tried to isolate it to cases where the home plate umpire was getting criticized. And they found that this effect shows up when they were getting criticized specifically for their ball and strike calling. And they also looked up the player ejected or the party ejected because they looked at coaches too. And they brought in Fangraphs War because they wanted to know whether the talent level or the value of the player affected things. Because if it, it was just trying to compensate for the fact that they had deprived that team of a player, then maybe there might be a greater compensation if there was an all-star level player ejected as opposed to a coach or some scrub, right? And they found that that didn't really matter, that it was these ball strike call specific ejections and whoever the player or party ejected was, the effect was pretty consistent, which they took to conclude that it really is about just being badgered and being chastened by that or wanting to avoid further criticism. And they found that there was some basis to the criticism that the calls actually had gone against the complaining team prior to the complaint in the ejection. But then after the ejection, the calls did go in favor of the complaining team. And it wasn't just regression, like they had a whole strike zone model set up. So they were taking into account what the strike call rate should have been in theory. And it seems like complaining pays based on this. And you could take that to conclude that everyone should constantly be complaining. Now, they said at the end that they don't intend for this to be encouragement to people complaining and giving umpires a a hard time. So they said at the end, education geared toward understanding the potential impact of excessive criticism on one's decision making may be beneficial for people in positions of authority, especially to help them make informed, rational and fair decisions by limiting the advantage provided to the verbally aggressive individuals in group. Decision makers could help decrease the frequency of aggressive behavior and unfair decisions. Our should therefore be used to better understand the impact of verbal aggression in order to decrease its use, not to encourage its spread. <laughs> so someone could read this and say, oh, we should argue even more. We should constantly be giving umpires a hard time. They're saying, actually, umpires can arm themselves with this knowledge and know that they might be prone to making more favorable calls to complainers, and thus they can compensate for that in the future. But some support 
for the idea that really ragging umpires riding on him, bench jockeying. This was limited to ejections. So who knows whether just kind of calling out complaints that don't lead to ejections have the same effect, but Mm. maybe they do or a more muted effect. So this lends some support to the idea that uh, players benefit from arguing with umpires and making them feel bad about themselves, basically. (laughs) (sighs) I don't love it, Ben. You know, I feel like it's it points to something bad. About humanity, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't want to say that, like, umpires are above reproach. We know that's not true, but it strikes me as a, a not good, if entirely legible, human dynamic. Because mm-hmm. who, like, who wants to be yelled at at work all the time, you know? Yeah, no yeah. one. And and that's no exactly one. why they then start right. making more favorable calls. Like, leave me alone. You know, I'm sure it's it's probably largely unconscious, I would think. It's not like, oh, I got to get these guys off my back or, you know, not even necessarily a conscious makeup call. But right. just like, why are you being so mean to me? <laughs> just yeah. like, leave me alone. But but that suggests that, yeah, you know, squeaky wheel gets the grease, I guess, when it comes to umpire performance. Yeah, I just am, um, I get it. And like, I'm a, you know, I'm a complainer by nature. Mm-hmm. So um, I understand the instinct to do it too. But I don't know. I just think uh, we're cruel to them in a lot of uh, little ways. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, we're comfortable with it because they they are harsh in your vibe, guys. You know, yeah. that's like their purpose is to harsh the vibe. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I feel a weird sense of protective instinct around umpires, even though yeah. often, I don't know, man. I, I hope people don't abuse these findings to I abuse find umpires. I find it disturbing. <laughs> I, I find it, I feel like it speaks to something very dark at the core yeah. of our being as human persons, you know? Yeah. I don't care for it at all. Yeah, and I want maybe you could take it too far if you're I mean, notorious yeah. for this. Like maybe if you're if you're not known for badgering umpires and then you do, maybe right. umpires might take that into account. Like, oh, huh, maybe he has a point where it could just become a, a person who cried wolf situation yeah. if you're always complaining. We've talked to umpires, we've had Dale Scott on the podcast. Like umpires know who gives them the hardest time and also yeah. who is least reasonable about it. So Probably you could take this tactic too far, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. it, it might backfire in some ways that would not be quantified by this study. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because okay. at a certain point, you you move from um, wanting to just make the, the tirade stop to seeking revenge, you know, mm-hmm. in defense of yourself and potentially your family. So, yeah. uh, you know, there is a, a balance to be struck there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, speaking of complaints, I have one last one, although it's really sort of a secondhand complaint that I am relaying here, but also endorsing. And this mm. is pretty much a PSA, but I suppose it's sort of a stat blast PSA, so we could mm. call it a stat blast. It's the stat will take a data set, sort it by something like E or a minus or OPS plus. And then they'll tease out some interesting tidbit, discuss it at length, and analyze it for us in amazing ways. Here's today's Stat Blast. Are you familiar with the Greg Maddox fun fact about 3-0 counts? Have you seen this circulating? Mm-hmm. Okay, well... 
I cannot unsee it. I encounter this fun fact everywhere. It's the fun fact that won't die. It's the zombie fun fact. Oh, no. Frequent staff plus consultant Ryan Nelson also has been peeved about this, and he directed my attention to the latest incarnation of this fun fact, which was tweeted just this week by a Twitter account called Baseball's Greatest Moments at BB Great Moments. It's often these aggregators, uh, Facebook accounts, Twitter accounts who just kind of pump out recycled content. They get great mileage out of the Greg Maddox fun fact and this formulation of it, and it's usually roughly the same. Greg Maddox faced 20,421 batters over the course of his career. Only 310, 1.5%, saw a 3-0 count. Of those, over half of them, 177, were intentional walks. Now, no matter how many times this fun fact gets promulgated, it always goes viral, seemingly. So this one has several hundred retweets and thousands of likes. And it just always seems to. (laughs) Occasionally, you'll see someone being like, yeah, I've seen this before, you know, years ago, or someone will try to debunk it. But usually it's just greeted by a a chorus of appreciation and wow, what a great guy Greg Maddox was. And he was. I do not come to take Greg Maddox down a peg. Mm -hmm. That is not my purpose or my mission or, as you would say, my project here. I like Greg Maddox. He's a great pitcher. There are lots of great stats you could share about Greg Maddox. But Ryan put together just a thread of the times that this exact fun fact has been shared. And it is not correct, for one thing. And it's also just not a very good fun fact, even if we correct it, what they mean when they say this. It's just not a very good fun fact. So the problem with this? Well, it's it's twofold, really. One, it's a confusion between on 3-0 counts and mm. after 3-0 counts. Mm. And I understand the confusion. I understand those how... Are bi- those, are, those are big... There's a big difference there. There is a that, big difference, yes. Yeah. I, I do understand how someone could... Looking at baseball references, you see on 3-0 or just as 3-0 or after mm-hmm. 3-0. You know, you might see just the first one and think that's what you're looking for here. But there are always two varieties of count-based splits. One is what happens on plate appearances that end on that count. Yes. Where that count is the last one in that plate appearance. It's the decisive count. Yes. And then the other variety, which usually you want to use depending on what you're doing here, but typically it's the better one to use for most purposes, is plate appearances that started Right. At that count. They went right. through that count and then right. they continued. <laughs> and right. it could have started 3-0 and ended in a walk or 3-0 and ended in a strikeout. Anything could happen after it starts right. 3-0. But it doesn't end on 3-0 I mean, necessarily. But, you know, not, yeah, more than true. one thing. <laughs> There's a limited number of things that could happen, I guess. Although, you always see something new at the ballpark. That's mm-hmm. what they say. So, this is confusing the on 3-0 with the through 3-0. Okay. And the after 3-0, that is one problem here. But it's also just not that great a stat, even if you kind of correct it. So Ryan ran the numbers here. And I've seen people many times pointing out this is just incorrect factually. You know, you're using the wrong split. But I haven't seen anyone dive into, well, how good was Greg Maddox at this actually? If we have the correct version of this stat, how impressive is it? 
Let's just quickly go through each of the claims in this formulation of the fun fact. So it starts, Greg Maddox faced 20,421 batters over the course of his career. Correct. On that, we can agree. Only 310, 1.5%, saw a 3-0 count. Of those, over half of them, 177, were intentional walks. Wrong on multiple counts, no pun intended. There were 312 times that a plate appearance ended on the pitch immediately following a 3-0 count. And of those 312, 153 were intentional walks. However, 643 batters, 3.1%, still a low number, but not 1.5%, more than twice as high. 643 batters saw a 3-0 count, but many of them saw a strike before the plate appearance ended. Now let's zoom out a bit to a league-wide level. Ryan looked 1988, which is the first year that we have complete pitch-by-pitch data, through 2016, which was the last year that you had to actually throw pitches for an intentional walk. And over that period, the percentage of counts league-wide that started 3-0 was 5.1%. And Greg Maddox, 3.3%. Okay, well, definitely lower, a good deal lower, as you'd expect. He's a great pitcher, great control pitcher. And then the percentage of 3-0 counts that led to an intentional walk, it was 12.5% league-wide. And then Greg Maddox, almost twice as high, 23.8%, which again, he's good. You know, a higher percentage of the times that he started 3-0, it was on purpose or he was uh, en route to an intentional walk. Okay, so, okay, he's good. We know that. He's Greg Maddox. But how extraordinary is it? Now, Ryan looked of the 2,344 pitchers with 500 or more batters faced in this span, Maddox was 134th in overall percentage of counts starting with a 3-0 count and 50th in non-intentional walk 3-0 counts. So he's toward the top, but he's not at the tippy top. There were quite a few pitchers ahead of him there. Of the 313 pitchers with 5,000 or more batters faced, so we're talking long careers here, starters, Maddox, 25th in overall Mm. percentage of counts starting with a 3-0 count and 5th in non-intentional walk 3-0 counts. So in neither of these, is he number one? Is he elite? Is he an outlier? You could say he's elite. I guess it's fair to say he's elite, but he's not the best. Now, if you go with the 500 or more batters faced group, then Cardinals reliever Seth Manus is the (laughs) king of this stat. Sure, yeah. (laughs) Former Ringer MLB show guest Seth Manus, not because he was the king of the stat, didn't know that, but because he was kind of a pioneer when it came to the internal brace Tommy John alternative procedure. But Seth Manus allowed only 2.8% of his batter's face to reach a 3-0 count, and 53.6% of those were intentional. So his non-intentional 3-0 counts, only 1.3% of batter's face. That's half of Greg Maddox's yeah. Greg Maddox can't hold a candle to Seth yeah. Manus. eat his dust. Now, obviously, yeah, Manus was a reliever and had not nearly as many batters face. Uh, he barely faced 1,000 batters in his career. Maddox faced more than 19,000, okay? So 
<laughs> adjusted for playing time and role, yeah. I think we could say Greg Maddox is still pretty impressive. But again, there are a lot of pitchers in between Seth Manis and Greg Maddox, yeah. none of whom had as many batters faced as Greg Maddox, but many more than Seth Manis, at least. And if we look at just the the 5,000-plus batters-faced group, and of course, I'll put the full spreadsheets online here for people to peruse, but sure. 5,000 or more plate appearances batters-faced, that's a lot. It's yeah. not as many as Craig Maddox, but no. Brett Saberhagen, number one on the list. So 7,051 batters-faced tracked during this period, and we should say Greg Maddox had a couple years pre-88, so we don't have the data for those years, which were not his best years. But Brett Saderhagen, the years that we do have, 7,051 batters faced, 2.4% of counts started 3-0, 14.6% of 3-0 counts went to intentional walks, and so 2.1% of his batters faced were non-intentional walk 3-0 counts compared to Maddox's 2.5%. So Saberhagen, number one, Rick Reed, number hmm. two, at 2.2%. The immortal Carlos Silva, 2.4%. <laughs> I mean, what a control artist Carlos Silva yeah. was, 2.4%. And Carl Pavano, 2.4%. So again, none of these guys had nearly as many batter space as Greg Maddox, but... They were all better than Greg Maddox in this stat. So next yeah. time you see someone regurgitate the Greg Maddox zombie fun fact, you could correct it or you could just say, you know what? Rick Reed was better, though. Yeah. <laughs> Carl Pavano was better. Carlos Silva was better. Yeah. Brett Saberhagen, more of a name brand pitcher, he was better. Yeah. So Maddox was good at this, but he was not some sort of outlier. So I don't think this is even really the best stat you could use even to make the case that Greg Maddox was great, which obviously he was. He was one of the best pitchers of all time. But I just don't think this is the way to say it because you need some frame of reference. Like, what's the typical percentage? Okay, that sounds low, but is it the lowest? What's the average? Is Rick Reed better? Yes, it turns out Rick Reed was better. Maybe we should talk more about Rick Reed. Is, would it be acceptable if I just scrolled past the um, fun fact on Twitter and didn't yes. think about it at all? You could ignore it. You could would it not be okay let if it bother you. Okay. Yes. I'm going to I'm bothered by so many things already. I don't know if I have room <laughs> for new inventory. Okay. Yeah. The only thing necessary for a bad fun fact to triumph is for the the fun factors to not say anything, to do nothing, to not do stat blast PSAs about them. So I felt like I had to step up. Ryan asked me to use our podcast pulpit here, and I thought it was a good use of our time. The other Maddox myth, which someone responded to this latest incarnation of the fun fact by saying, in today's game, you wonder if he'd ever have gotten promoted to AAA given his fastball topped out in the mid-80s. No, no, it didn't. Greg Maddox, he was a fairly hard-throwing pitcher in his youth. We all remember old Greg Maddox, who was topping out in the high 80s. But when he was a younger man, Greg Maddox was like sitting low 90s at least. Like he could get it up there. He could top out at 93, mid-90s-ish. And, and that was an earlier era. He had above average velocity when he was a, a young man. And you got to be careful because the, the guns, the radar guns at that time, they would often measure at the plate in Instead right. of out of the hand, and so the ball would have slowed down by the time it was measured. Right. But right. but relative to his peers, you look at the scouting reports, like 
he wasn't like a, a VLO monster. He wasn't the ultimate flamethrower. And obviously, he had other skills and, and talents. Like there's a, a scattering report you can find from when he was like 18 and in high school from 84 or whatever. And it says like good fastball, like above average fastball. They were worried about his command <laughs> and his control, right? So that was maybe not the best read. But he could get it up there when he was young. Like we remember the old man Maddox and he could get by with not great velo at that point, but he could dial it up when he was younger. So we can't underrate his stuff and we can't overrate his ability to avoid 3-0 counts. <sighs> ben, yeah. I'm sighing, not because yeah. of your impassioned Stat blast, fun fact, mm -hmm. rebuttal. Yeah. Because there's a new pant development. <laughs> no, new transparent pants dropped. Well, or they didn't drop. They didn't have to drop because we can see or, through them. Uh, the assertion is that old transparent pants dropped. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's from our friend Lindsay Adler at the Wall Street Journal. New statement on the pants from an MLB official. The uniform pants have the same material and thickness as the uniform pants used last season. Yeah. There were changes to the fabric of the jersey, not the pants. Right. Yeah. I, I mentioned this last time because Paul Lucas said that too. Like the, the tint is different. Maybe the color is different. And maybe the fit is different. But the fabric, supposedly, they maintain is not different. And there are pictures from previous photo days where you can see through them, maybe not quite to the same extent. Not to the same degree, I, don't I would think argue. To the same degree. I agree. I agree it's not the same. But I don't think we're just laboring under a mass delusion here I don't that either. we all just ignored the transparent pants I before. I, well, I, I don't, don't think we did. Like, I think we're primed to notice it just because sure. of the other changes and, sure. and the hubbub about that. Sure. But I just, I, I think something new is going on. Something's here. going on. Yeah. So you got to get to the bottom of this pants mystery. I, I need, I need a lab to get involved. You know, yes. I need, I need yes. chemical analysis. I mm -hmm. need, I need pants and pants and held up to the light. I mean, here's the main difference that I see. I'm, I don't want to give short shrift to your, your exhaustively researched, um, fun fact refutation, but I'm just worked up, Ben. I'm so worked up about these pants. Mm -hmm. And so I must give short shrift. Uh, yeah. I think you put it all so well. What could I add? Thank nothing. You. I have nothing sure. to add. I have much to add on the pants. So here mm -hmm. we are with me adding on the pants. I just, here's what I'll say. I agree that when you look at, at photos from last year's photo day and this year's, there are some instances where there is, appear to be some amount of translucence. Is that a word? Translucence? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cool. Good job, Meg. Um, but I would argue two things. First, not to the same degree. And second of all, I think the place where the difference is the most striking is not in the photo shoot setting. It's in mm -hmm. the walking around outside setting. Mm -hmm. Because, look, I know that I have had jokes about Cal Raleigh and the use of Big Dumper, mm -hmm. but I'm not trying to see the Big Dumper yeah. Actually, and let me tell you, I feel like I am coming dangerously close anytime Mariners mm -hmm. PR tweets video of Cal Raleigh walking around. And i that's not my business. His jumper is his business and his wife's if he has one. I don't know if he does. It's not mine. I don't need to see it. It's mm -hmm. none of my business. I refuse to believe these are the same pants. They yeah. might be. They're not. There's, there's important difference. And I know that people are saying, oh, it's the tailoring. But... But we have heard from players that the tailoring is not to their liking because it's not 
They're not it's doing not, it. Yeah, They're just it, giving them pants. Right. It's not customizable, at least. It, it can't be tailored the base, to their specifications. The, uh, maybe the, yeah, the, the, the base pants might are be. Are tighter? They were might just, be tighter because it's like performance no. wear. You I, know? I mean, <sighs> Ben. <laughs> I don't it's know, man. It's going to be an ongoing story. There will be I, more it reporting. It should be an ongoing story because I feel insane and I need... <laughs> we are being... It's, it's, They're trying to tell us the pants were always transparent. It's the ball all over again. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> I, just, I just did a little fist. Oh, my God. I'm so... They're trying to uh, pants light us here and we I won't have it. Independent pant analysis. <laughs> Where's the independent pant analysis lab? Yeah. Go find it. Get, yeah. Take these pants. What what brave non-Nike athlete hero will come forth with their mm-hmm. pants from last year and yes. their pants from this year? And they can just lie. Just lie and say, I'm I misplaced my pants. And they'll mm-hmm. be like, Can you wear your pants from last year? And and you'll say, I have misplaced those as well. You know, I'm moving, <laughs> I'm coming and going. Something's wrong here, Ben. <laughs> we will monitor all developments and update I don't want to have to monitor. <laughs> I feel like I've seen too much already. Yeah, we, we've monitored too much as it is, but you said it's like the ball all over again. I know you mean the baseball, but the degree to which balls are involved is part of the problem. As I saw someone else say, the cover-up is worse than the crime. Here, it's the lack of cover-up. And really, whether it's new or not, it's not great. If we somehow failed to notice that the pants were semi-transparent last season, well, we've noticed now. And once you see it, it's tough to unsee. Anyway, we'll take a quick break now. How about that? And we're going to preview two teams today, which I have not mentioned. But I figure, you know, if you looked at the title and description of this podcast. I know, because I was there for both of them. Yes, you, you definitely know. And <laughs> these are two unquestionably Midwestern teams. We have established yes. that beyond oh, all doubt. Yes. So we'll be back in just a moment with Aaron Gleeman of The Athletic to talk about the Minnesota Twins, followed by Cody Stavenhagen, also of The Athletic, to talk about the Detroit Tigers. He's a twin. He's a Canadian twin and he rakes Until the lefty comes in, he won't swing If it's out of the zone, that's one thing I just gotta know Edward Julian, how you gonna rule again? Edward Julian, how you gonna rule again? Edward Julian, how you gonna rule He's again? He's absurd, a rookie match in the soon He knows French, and he leads a platoon That's one thing I just gotta say, Edward Julian, how you gonna rule again? Edward Julian, how you gonna rule again? Well, it's been a quiet winter in the Twin Cities, Minnesota, Aaron Gleeman's hometown, out there on the edge of the prairie, but he is here to discuss it with us nonetheless. Aaron covers the Twins for The Athletic and, of course, the Gleeman and the Geek podcast, and he always joins us to preview the Twins season. It's always a pleasure. Hello. Thank you guys for having me. So this has not been a full throttle offseason, but in contrast to the Red Sox, at least, no one said it would be. I guess the Twins have been pretty upfront about the fact that they were downshifting. And your most recent tweet, or one of them, is relative to the average MLB payroll. The Twins' current 2024 payroll is their lowest since the final season at the Metrodome in 2009. So tell us what the Twins' rationale for slashing some payroll coming off of a successful season, winning a playoff series, is. Well, it's kind of, that target has shifted a little bit. It was initially explained and written about endlessly 
related to the TV situation. And they weren't alone with that, obviously. But their deal was up after last season with Diamond Sports Group, Bally Sports North. And it paid them $55 million a year. And they were assuming they were going to get a very small fraction of that, either going under MLB's umbrella or re-upping or whatever. And they kind of prepped everyone for this or warned everyone about this right after the season in early mm -hmm. November. Then it turns out that through the bankruptcy proceedings and Amazon uh, jumping into the mix late to kind of save Diamond Sports Group, well, now they back on a one-year deal with Bally Sports North. They haven't, they've very intentionally made the dollar figures private, but the assumption is that they're getting roughly 40-something million instead of 55 million. And so then the next natural question was, okay, well, how much of that are you guys going to spend on payroll now? And it just so happens that there are several pretty prominent free agents that you could <laughs> still pursue. And the answer to them this week, and in fact, their owner, Joe Polad, was in camp giving some interviews this week, was basically, oh, none of that. We'll be keeping roughly, you know, they might add $5 million or something to the current $124 million payroll. But yeah, like you said, I mean, their payroll last year was 158 I want to say. And now it's 124 it's lower relative, as you quoted earlier, since the Metrodome days. And that makes people here furious because obviously, like any new ballpark, Target Field was pitched as a way to be competitive and raise payroll for a small or mid-market team. So it's been uh, frustrating. And now they've sort of pivoted to saying, well, yeah, the TV situation was part of it, but we've had bigger problems than that. And we've been looking to downsize the payroll or right-size the business is the quote that uh, <laughs> yes. Joe Polad gave uh, a couple of days ago on radio. Yikes. And so that's, yeah, that's, uh, that tells me it's not just this season and it's not just about TV. Well, we've talked about the competitive situation in the AL Central or the non-competitive situation at times. And it seems like one reason why the AL Central isn't collectively better, or the payrolls aren't higher, is that there isn't any one team that is dragging them higher. There isn't even a Illich era or <laughs> original flavor Illich era Tigers team, right? And so the Twins, even not having a very active offseason, are still pretty clearly the favorites in the Central, I think, if if not by so much that they could be confident that they will just waltz to another AL Central title. So is this just Polad cheapness or is it the fact that none of their rivals are pushing them? I guess it could be both. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. It's, that's the, the frustrating part, I think, from a fan base standpoint is this roster, because of all the young guys who stepped forward last year, Royce Lewis and Ed Julian and Matt Walner, it's relatively well-equipped or at least as well-equipped as a roster can be, to shed $30 million in payroll and remain competitive in part because the division is bad. And so the front office has kind of made the argument of like, you know, it's not going to wreck us. We can still put a good team on the field. And I definitely think they're clear favorites in the division. On the other hand, if you have a fairly cheap, young roster that is improving, this would be the prime time to, you know, put extra money and not shed $30 million. And so that to me is the most frustrating part. But, you know, if you're kind of compartmentalizing that, it doesn't mean they're not going to win this division. I mean, I think they would have to play pretty poorly not to win this division because this division is terrible. It was terrible last year. I think it's going to be just as bad this year, potentially even worse. And there just aren't that many teams trying that hard, including, unfortunately, the Twins. And so that's the kind of, I don't know, two sides of this thing is that it's, easier for ownership not to invest and it's easier for the front office to say hey we we don't mind not investing the team's fine when there just isn't a big threat and when 85 wins could potentially win this thing again 
Well, and I guess one of the places that they presumably could have spent to, to bolster the club would have been in the rotation. They lost Sonny Gray and Kenta Maeda to free agency. They brought in Anthony DiScalfani in trade with Seattle, but there isn't a lot of depth here. Pablo Lopez was great last season. Joe Ryan and Bailey Ober are good. Chris Paddock seems like he's sort of bouncing back from early career woes. But what what is your assessment of this rotation group and who are who are the next couple of guys beyond this five if injury or underperformance should afflict anybody? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely the most glaring area where if you had another 25 or 30 million, that would have been the thing to address. I mean, they did that in going out and getting uh, Pablo Lopez last year, Sonny Gray two years ago. They're sort of viewing Paddock as the Gray replacement, which I do think Paddock, he's looked very good last season late uh, in a bullpen role. He's looked good in camp. He's actually going to start uh, their first game of the spring. But that's asking a lot for a guy coming back from two Tommy John surgeries to replace the runner-up for the Cy Young. You know, Di Sclafani, I think, if healthy, has been a fourth or fifth starter, certainly. They have a prospect named Louis Varlin, who uh, has pitched some starts and was really good down the stretch in the bullpen last year. So he's sort of their AAA next guy for the rotation, the sixth starter. They have some decent pitching prospects who ended last year at AAA. David Festa is one of them that we'll definitely see at some point this year, but the most obvious thing that they're missing through slashing the payroll is a frontline playoff caliber starter to technically replace Gray or even to replace Maeda with a little more confidence. They're also just kind of missing, you know, last year, Bailey Ober was their sixth starter. He start, he began the year at AAA. Louis Varlin was their seventh starter. So now they're just kind of relying on some young guys, very untested, maybe sooner than they would like, uh, all things considered. And that's also true on the position player side. So that doesn't mean it's going to go bad. I mean, oftentimes having to turn to a young player instead of a veteran placeholder can work well in the short term, definitely in the long term. But it's a big change from last year where they sort of, at this time last year, they were touting the veteran depth that they had as a big strength and it, it, they ended up really needing it. And I guess the good news is that the bullpen seems to be a bright spot. The Twins bullpen projects to be the third best at baseball, the best in the American League. We know about the guy who gets the saves. We're also excited for the full season Brock Stewart experience. <laughs> Tell us about this whole group. I, I mean, I'm a believer. We were watching, like, Jorge Alcala is a guy who two or three years ago was very good, and he's been hurt the last couple years, and he threw a live BP yesterday. He was like 98, 99, slider looked good. Everybody was talking about how good he is. And then I looked at, you know, kind of my projected opening day roster. And I'm like, I don't even think this guy's going to be on the in the opening day bullpen. He might be at AAA. And so they've assembled a ton of depth, I think, in part because, you know, for a million and a half bucks, you can get a Josh Stamont or a Jay Jackson or a Steven Okert, whereas for a million and a half bucks gets you nothing in the rotation. And so I think they've sort of pivoted to building out as much bullpen depth, not because they think the rotation is going to be terrible or anything, but because they think this is a way to invest and improve depth under their self-imposed payroll limits. And it's really, you know, you can spend $5 million and add several arms that can be valuable in the bullpen where $5 million doesn't really do you much good position player side or the rotation. So yeah, I mean, I think Duran is, I would say, probably a top five reliever in MLB. In the closer spot, Brock Stewart was amazing. If they can keep him healthy, he's potentially... You know, a, an all-star caliber setup man. Griffin Jacks, Caleb Thielbar have been very good for them the past couple of years. They added Justin Topa from uh, from Meg's beloved Mariners, who I think <laughs> has a chance to be pretty good. And then they just have some nice depth 
veteran depth pieces too. Plus they have guys like Varlin who, if he weren't needed as rotation depth, he's a guy who was hitting 100 miles an hour with a good cut or two out of the bullpen late in the season. I really think that the bullpen is the most obvious strength of the team, which is a good thing, except it's probably the least reliably projected aspect of a baseball team, I would say. <laughs> like, I, I not not saying anything about the people doing the projection. Like, I, mm-hmm. I look at fan graphs and I think, ooh, top three bullpen, that's really great. But I'd much rather have a top three rotation or really a top three anything uh, other than a top three bullpen. But it's it's a big improvement over certainly the group that they started last season with. You mentioned potential injury concerns in the bullpen, and I think that that's magnified significantly when you look to the lineup. I don't quite know where to start among the guys in this lineup who are presumably very good at baseball, but also have huge injury question marks hanging over them. And maybe we can begin with Byron Buxton, just because it feels irresponsible to do a Twins preview pod and not talk about what his health is like now and sort of what your expectations are for him. We saw what the DH-only version of Buxton looked like last year, and it was less spectacular than the guy we've seen be one of the most exciting players in baseball. So what is the state of Buxton's health and what do you think the twins are going to get from him this year? Okay. So this is a yearly thing basically. And I I need to like preface any comments that are going to come across as optimistic as saying, yes, there's a massive dose of skepticism that is needs to be applied and is naturally applied to anything related to Byron Buxton's health. Now, with that said, this time last year, he was coming off knee surgery, and it became clear almost immediately he was not going to be ready to go. And like you said, he ended up being a DH, and that didn't work. It didn't keep him healthy. It didn't keep him productive. He eventually got shut down. Then he had another knee surgery, which he's coming back from now, but it was a different knee surgery. It removed the plica from his knee. I hate how much I have to pretend to be a doctor as part <laughs> of this job. Um, but in talking to him, even, uh, after a couple rounds of live BP and he was shagging some balls in the outfield, he hadn't played center field at all basically in a year and a half uh, until this week. And he is just a completely different mindset and the vibes are different and everything. Now, how much you want to base projections off mindsets and vibes and quotes and all that, but it, it does seem that the Twins, in part maybe because the DH plan just didn't work so they don't have another choice, are are treating him as a center fielder again. He's moving around significantly better than he was at this time last year. You have to be a realistic. I mean, even a healthy, quote-unquote healthy, Byron Buxton is going to be 100 games perhaps instead of 150 games. But they're definitely banking on him. But again, it's hard to know how much of that is about optimism and how much of it is about, well, they didn't have the money to re-sign Michael A. Taylor or sign a Kevin Kiermeyer to be an insurance policy for him. So they're sort of forced to rely on young guys. They're sort of forced to rely on Byron Buxton getting healthy again. But so far, so good uh, with Buxton. I would say this is the most upbeat he's been from an injury standpoint in years. And we can maybe continue the the injury concern train and and talk about Royce Lewis, who I think given all of the the lower body issues he had had, most of us were just excited when he was able to take the field as a big leaguer. I don't know that anyone expected his 58-game cameo last year to go quite as well as it did. It was spectacular. It seems like he was always hitting grand slams and certainly had some notable postseason moments. So where is he at and what do you expect from him and what will hopefully be a full season? They're definitely treating him as just a healthy, normal player. And maybe there's some skepticism needed for that too. But, you know, he was spectacular last year, even in the playoffs. And seemed to get pretty comfortable pretty quickly at third base after being a shortstop. 
uh, for his entire career coming up as a prospect. You know, he's definitely, I would say, they're kind of the building block of this entire franchise at this point. And he's going to be in the middle of that lineup. I would expect him to basically get a full, you know, everyday workload until he shows that he can't handle it. And that's huge. I mean, they have Buxton, who the spectrum of results from him is as wide, I think, as any player in baseball, probably. I don't think Royce Lewis is quite at that level in terms of what to expect, but a huge question mark too. And then as you hinted at, there's several other guys in this lineup who are are similar situations. And so on paper or even in projections, which are going to kind of regress these things to 50th percentile outcomes or whatever, this looks to me like a pretty good deep lineup with the potential to be very good if Buxton, Correa, uh, Lewis are healthy. But again, if some of these guys aren't healthy, which has been the case the last several years, they don't really have the like next line of defense, the Michael A. Taylors or the Donovan Solanos that they had last year, the veteran guys. So they're going to have to turn to Austin Martin, Brooks Lee, some of the some of the prospects. It's not such a bad thing necessarily, but the the uncertainty I think is reason to worry a little bit. Well, there are at least a couple other players that we could cover now sticking with the theme of injuries and possible recoveries. Why don't we move to Carlos Correa next? How is he feeling? He's fully recovered from plantar fasciitis. Obviously, that doesn't mean it can't come back and be an issue again this season. But they essentially tried to just get him on the field for the last four months or so with it. And you could see it in his performance. I mean, he grounded into a million double plays. He just wasn't as good. I thought it was actually sort of remarkable given some of the quotes that he said and also other people who have had plantar fasciitis talking about how painful it is that he was able to get almost 600 plate appearances and able to do what he did. And he had a very good October, which he the whole season basically said over and over, just get me to the playoffs and I can do something. But it looks like he's 100%. He's running much better. I mean, he's lost speed from what he was back in the day, but he's he's running much better so that he maybe won't be an automatic double play candidate with every ground ball. And so, yeah, I mean, I think as a trio, Buxton, Correa, and Lewis, the you know 10th percentile to 90th percentile or even like 75th percentile outcomes here are just such massive swings for the middle of this lineup. And they're all right-handed, whereas uh, most of the role players and kind of of middle-of-the-road hitters for the Twins are left-handed. And so, yeah, this is just huge. I mean, the lineup is going to live or die with how healthy those guys can be, how often the three of them can be a force in the middle of that lineup. But, you know, and it's, you know, late February, so everybody's healthy and everybody's feeling good. But so far, it's a much different situation than it was in spring training for Buxton and for Lewis, because Lewis wasn't even available last spring. He was still coming back from the second uh, knee surgery. And then by about May, it became clear that Correa just wasn't going to be himself. And so now all three guys look pretty close to the player that the Twins want them to be. And now it's just kind of a matter of how do we get to uh, March 28th or whatever with that still the case. And one more while we're at it, Alex Kirilov. It was a better year last year from a wrist perspective, and he hit well when he was on the field. He did then have a shoulder strain in August that cost him some time, and then that recurred to some extent in the postseason. So is he expected to be 100% as well? Yes. Alex Kirilov is basically cleared for a normal spring training. He's taken live BP with everyone. I think he looks pretty decent so far in the early going, but that's the one spot where they spent a little bit of money on some veteran depth or you know insurance they brought in Carlos Santana as part of the first base DH mix and I honestly think 
just kind of reading between the lines of some of Rocco Badali's quotes to us here early on in camp that it's going to end up being Santana a lot of the time at first base, in part because he's probably a better defender than Kirloff and in part because he's just more durable than Kirloff. And they, I think, might want to treat Kirloff as more part of a DH mix. You know, keep him. I mean, he did make a, a very bad play at first base in the playoffs. The next day, then he was removed from the roster. Uh, and they basically said he's not physically able to go. And so there's some hope that keeping him as part of the DH mix can maybe alleviate some of the wear and tear on the shoulder and the wrist and all that. I mean, he's still 26 and he still showed a lot of promise, but I do think they've moved to the point with him as opposed to like Buxton or Lewis or Correa where they feel like we can't just trust that he'll be a big part of it. If he is, that's great. He can definitely be a middle of the lineup impact guy, but we can't count on that. One guy who they are clearly counting on to be an impact and to be in the lineup every day is Edward Julien, who uh, will be taking over second base duties now that Jorge Polanco is in Seattle. What did they see in Julien last year that made them confident that they could move on from Polanco? Because he had a great rookie campaign, 136 WRC+. If I were looking for reasons to be a little skeptical, I'd look at a 371 Babbitt and a 31% strikeout rate and wonder sort of what a full season of him looks like. But what are your expectations for Julian? I think that's definitely fair. I mean, I wouldn't expect him to have as high a batting average for sure, but I think the the plate discipline is is incredible. Like I've I've rarely ever seen a young hitter who just will not swing at pitches outside the strike zone or even borderline pitches to the point that there's always some discussion like, is he too disciplined or too passive? Does he need to kind of open things up a little bit? Which Rocco Baldelli is always like, no, I like it. I want all the walks. And he showed some pretty good power. But I think the biggest reason that they felt comfortable moving on from Polanco and clearing the path for Julian, well, there's two. One is Julian from opening day to the end of the season improved tremendously defensively. He went from a guy at second base who was borderline unplayable to somebody who at least resembled average. And so if there's a little bit more room for improvement there this season, I think he can get to a point where his defense is not really an issue, in which case he's just a really good top-of-the-order walks and power bat who can be passable defensively at an up-the-middle spot, which is hugely valuable. The other thing is, if he can't do that, if he regresses offensively or his defense is just not something they want to live with, their closest... Uh, to the majors' top prospect, Brooks Lee, is starting to work at second base quite a bit. And I think that'll be his primary position going forward. And so it, it might end up being where Julian is kind of a placeholder at second base before eventually shifting to first base and DH whenever they feel like Brooks Lee is ready. And Brooks Lee could potentially be ready at midseason, in which case you'd have Royce Lewis at third, Carlos Correa at short, Brooks Lee at, at second and Ed Julian at first base. And you could trot out that infield for the next decade uh, if you wanted to, and it would be pretty pretty damn good. And while we're at it, two other guys who were really revelations last year and helped remake the Twins lineup, and I guess at least in one case was a high BABIP overperformer type, two 26-year-olds, Matt Walner and Ryan Jeffers. What is the outlook for them, and what's the risk of regression? I think with Jeffers... This time last year, they had signed Christian Vasquez for $30 million to take over as their new number one catcher. And it took a while. He struggled, and Jeffers was pretty great right away and kind of gradually chipped away and regained the number one job again to the point that he started all six playoff games and, and Vasquez was on the bench. I do think they still 
mostly want to split time during the regular season just from a workload standpoint. Uh, but Jeffers' improvement last year was huge. He also improved defensively throwing the ball, which was an issue for him. I don't know that he'll you know, lead AL catchers in OPS again. I think the strikeout rate probably lends itself to a lower batting average. But he's, his power is for real, and he's pretty disciplined. Walner is a guy I like a lot. I mean, he, he swings very hard, and he's always going to strike out a lot. But I actually think his approach at the plate is pretty good. Like, I don't think the high strikeout totals suggest he's just a free swinger or undisciplined. And he just has massive power. I mean, when he gets a hold of it, it's Sano-esque, which I know is another guy who uh, people got frustrated with because of strikeouts. But I think Walner is going to be the primary left fielder uh, because they didn't trade Max Kepler. So he remains the primary right fielder. And, you know, Walner, Julian, and Lewis were production-wise probably the best rookie hitting trio in the history of the Minnesota Twins, they're going to come back down to earth, I think, on a rate stat basis. But if you're going to be able to get 125 or 150 games out of each of them instead of you know 50, 75 games last year, I think that's a huge part of why people are around here at least are relatively optimistic that the lineup can be closer to the one it was in the second half when I think they were second to the Astros in most major categories versus the first half when they were one of the most kind of boomer bust in the American League. We don't usually go through every single lineup slot in these (laughs) segments, but in this case, pretty much everyone with the Twins is interesting for some reason, and there's only one left, and it's our low BABIP king, Max Kepler, who is coming off a high BABIP year by his standards, a career high 288. All right, almost into the realm of (laughs) normality and respectability, and obviously that boosted his stats accordingly, so... Did he do anything different in that respect that led to that? And can it be expected to continue? I think the shift limitations helped him a little Mm -hmm. bit, for sure. I mean, I can just, from the eye test, think of, you know, a half dozen balls that definitely would have been outs previously that went for singles. But the funny thing is, even talking to him this spring, he was basically like, yeah, right around the All-Star break, I decided, let me just try to hit it through him or over them, which is the approach that he used in 2019 when he had his initial kind of breakthrough power season, he is never going to be a high batting average on balls and play guy. He doesn't strike out that much despite having a very poor career batting average. And so there was some room to sacrifice a little bit of overall contact for maybe more better contact. And I think he did that a lot last year. Kepler has always been a really good defender, so that's helped keep him in the lineup even when he's struggling offensively. But if he can be a 25-homer guy... The batting average, you know, it's going to vary a little bit. I'm not so worried about that, but he draws walks. He hits for power. This is his last season under team control, and he's basically, jerks like me have speculated about them trading him for about five years now, and <laughs> they've uh, held on to him just because they feel like he's more valuable than than what they're being offered. And so we saw them trade away Polanco. Both of them had been in the organization for 15 years. They were part of the same signing class uh, along with Snow. And so he's sort of the last guy standing, and he's taken on a little bit more of a leadership role. And again, as we look, you know, you're right. We've basically gone step by step through the lineup here. There maybe aren't a lot of like superstars that you can count on, other than maybe Lewis Correa Buxton, which they have huge health question marks. But I do feel like they have enough guys like Kepler, like Walner, like Julian. Uh, and Jeffers and maybe if healthy Kirloff, who they project to be, you know, 110, 115, 120 WRC plus type of guys. And if you get any sort of big time healthy production from their big three, the depth of that lineup, I think, can be pretty impressive. 
You mentioned that they've held on to Kepler and avoided trading him, but I'm curious sort of what your sense is of this team in terms of how aggressive they're willing to be over the course of the season if the the rest of the division ends up being a little more competitive than we necessarily predicted to be. Do you think that they would be aggressive at the deadline to add and sort of push their chips in for the Central? I think the front office, Derek Falvey and Thad Levine, have shown that they are willing to do that. In fact, they've made some trades, like the Tyler Maui trade and the Jorge Lopez pickup at midseason a couple years ago that now look very bad in retrospect. They lost some pretty good prospects to get veteran pitchers who were injured and ineffective. But I do think they're willing to kind of push chips into the middle if the scenario you described happens. But I just worry a little bit that their hands are going to be tied. Uh, I think, you know, if attendance is going really well and they're playing really well, maybe ownership will say, okay, we can kind of boost the payroll back. But in that case, they might not need to make trades if they're up big in the division. So if it's closer and people are getting frustrated and they're not uh, well past their attendance projections, I wonder how much money is going to be available to kind of bring in help. On the other hand, at the deadline, I mean, even a, I don't know, a $15 million salary for the full season, you're looking at like five or seven million at the deadline. So you would think that would be somewhat more doable. I do think they have some prospect capital that they could spend. And it wouldn't surprise me if they ended up sort of figuring out the second, third, and fourth spots in the rotation behind Lopez in the first half. And then if they decide, you know, we need help here, I think that would be the most obvious area that they could go try to pick some up, either an impending free agent or someone with a year and a half left of team control, which they've done a couple times in the past. That would be the most obvious thing. They have the, the prospect capital to make it, done, make it happen. I just worry at this point, given the payroll situation that's loomed over everything all offseason, if they'll actually have the, the money to bring someone in. Yeah. And if they weren't to trade someone, is there anyone who could come up and make an impact at some point this season? You mentioned Brooks Lee being the closest, and then I guess the other top prospects sort of skew toward the offensive side and maybe younger and lower in the minors, guys like Walker Jenkins and Emmanuel Rodriguez. But is there anyone else who might show up at some point this season? He's not technically a prospect, but I think Louis Varlin is a relatively young, inexperienced pitcher that by midseason, he's going to be a big part of the pitching staff. It's just a question of rotation or bullpen. I think I have a lot of interest in David Festa as sort of their best MLB ready or close to MLB ready starter prospect. And he, uh, six foot six righty, mid 90s fastball, potentially a number three starter type of guy if the control improves a little bit. So that could provide a boost. And then in addition to Lee for the lineup, I think Austin Martin, who has sort of become a little bit of a forgotten prospect because he's had some injuries and he hasn't lived up to the hype of a top five pick coming out of Vanderbilt. Uh, when he got picked by the Blue Jays, he was the headliner in the Jose Barrios trade a couple years ago. But he's basically major league ready and he might end up being more of a bottom of the lineup, super utility, kind of get on base and run a little bit. But as a right-handed hitter who can play second base, center field, left field, that's a role that they might have normally filled with, I don't know, a Tommy Pham or Adam Duvall or even Michael A. Taylor type if they had another 7 to $10 million to spend. And he might end up being kind of thrown into the fire a little bit with that. Pushing him into the fire a little bit ahead of schedule can pay off if he's ready. I mean, then you have a guy who can start to be a big part of your lineup for the next five years. But I think ideally they would have liked someone like Austin Martin to be one more step removed as a depth piece. We've talked a lot about payroll and 
they're not going to bring in a Jordan Montgomery or a Matt Chapman or something, but I certainly could see them spending another $5 million or $8 million, uh, on a corner outfielder, right-handed bat or something to get them to like the 130 range payroll-wise, in which case someone like Martin might begin the season at AAA. But if we're doing a roster projection today uh, as games start, I think he would probably be, be almost by default the last bench guy. All right. So last question, what constitutes success for this team this season? I guess you'd have to say that 2023 was a success. Not only did the Twins win a central title, but they won a playoff series. So what worlds are left to conquer? A post wildcard series? <laughs> series? Is that the goal now? What would be a success for this Twins team on all levels? I would say the clear baseline for success is at minimum what they did last year. And when we talked about how winnable this division is, you have to go out and win the division. Beyond that, it took them 20 years to win multiple playoff games or win a playoff series. A step back from that, like winning this division and getting swept like they did for so many years prior to last season, especially when combined with the payroll situation and the overall fan frustration uh, with that, I think would be a clear failure. So to me, the baseline for, yeah, this was a successful season for the Twins, Take care of business in a very winnable division, host a playoff series, and win that playoff series. And anything beyond that, obviously, you get to the second round, you maybe want to put up a little bit more of a fight or advance compared to what they did against the Astros last year. But I think it seems like to me, and this has become even more magnified because of the slash payroll, but anything short of that, it just gives fans such a rightful reason to feel disappointed and to feel like this team didn't take success and want to push forward from that. So I think, you know, win this very, very, very winnable division, uh, host the playoff series, do what you did last year and, you know, win a couple games there to advance and then hopefully make a little bit of a deeper run. I think that would probably qualify as a success for the Twins. And anything short of that gets people thinking about that 20-year streak and last year becomes a little bit of an afterthought, which I would think uh, would be a shame. So that's the, that's the mark of success, I think. All right. Well, Aaron Gleeman will be there for it all. You can read him at The Athletic. You can listen to him on Gleeman and The Geek. Always a pleasure, Aaron. Thank you very much. Anytime. Thank you. All right. Let's take one more quick break and we'll be right back with The Athletic's Cody Stavenhagen to talk about the Detroit Tigers. All right, we're back and we're joined by Cody Stavenhagen, who covers the Detroit Tigers for The Athletic and also on the Turn the Corner podcast, a name that might be more apt this year. Maybe this is the year that that name will be perfectly fitting. We'll talk about that. Cody, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, we've uh, we've joked about the turning the corner name for a couple of years here. We'll, we'll see if we ever get there. Yeah, maybe it was slightly premature, but you have to be right eventually. You could argue that the corner was turned to some extent already, but maybe they'll put more distance between them and the corner this year. It's definitely a different team. There's a different complexion to this team. It's a young team, as you've written. So I wanted to start off with a couple of questions about that. One reason why it's a younger team is the absence of elder statesman Miguel Cabrera. 
Not major news that the Tigers declined his $30 million option, exercised the $8 million buyout, and now no Mickey for the first time in many years. Now, from a performance standpoint, I guess you could argue sort of sadly that it's addition by subtraction. But in terms of the clubhouse and leadership and just the vibe of the Tigers without Mickey for the first time in a long time, what has that been like? Right. Vibe is kind of the ultimate spring training word, and it has been a noticeably different vibe. Spring training was kind of, I think, Miguel Cabrera's favorite time of year. When he would show up on the first day, he would be loud, he would be energetic, he would be that childlike ball player you hear about so often. Now, Miguel did have uh, different moods, but usually in spring training, he was in a good and very jovial mood. In a way, it feels quieter with Miguel gone. In a way, it's also really a passing of the torch, I think, on this team. This team now belongs to guys like Riley Green, Spencer Torkelson, Tarek Skubal. Just not having the big personality that was Miguel Cabrera in the room really does alter the energy. And um, I think it clears a path for the young guys to really take hold for it to be, like I said, their team. But what the exact effects of that are, what it looks like throughout the season, I, I think might actually take a while to play out. And you wrote a story in that vein, a fun story, good, perfect spring training story this week about the fact that everyone on the Tigers got hitched or agreed to get hitched <laughs> this offseason. Nine members of the Tigers 40-man roster got married or engaged, which Spencer Torkelson claimed was an MLB record. I'd like to see the data <laughs> on that. If Spencer is stat blasting that, I don't know what he's basing that on, but it doesn't sound implausible. So I guess that's just a reflection of the makeup of this team. Not that there aren't some veterans and some older early 30s, mid 30s guys around, but that is kind of a, an indication. That's sort of a symptom of who the Tigers are today, it seems like. No, it, it really is. I mean, you know, maybe they're younger teams. I was actually with the Baltimore Orioles earlier today, and I think, you know, top to bottom, they have a younger roster, but the Tigers have a lot of early to mid 20s guys. And uh, yeah, I, I think the MLB record definitely unofficial there from Spencer Torkelson, <laughs> but it was kind of jarring. You'd just be scrolling Instagram, and it was like every day another Tiger was getting engaged and got down to spring training, started asking about it. And sure enough, all the guys had kind of been teasing each other and they had had kind of their insi own inside jokes about the whole thing. Um, so old enough for all these guys to be in serious relationships and be engaged and married, but uh, still still a sign, I think, of the youth that that all this is kind of happening at the same time. Yeah, it's like the all the Dodgers going on paternity leave at the same time last <laughs> right, year. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's a sign of things to come. <laughs> yeah, another year or two, <laughs> it could be the Tigers' turn. Well, and if we want to stretch the marriage metaphor a little bit, we could maybe extend it to one of those young guys and ask, what did the Tigers see in Colt Keith that led them to a pre-debut extension? And perhaps just as importantly for him and for our listeners, what position do you ultimately think that Colt Keith is going to play? Because the bat I don't think is in question, but his defensive future is a touch cloudier. Yeah, the first part of that question is easy. The second part is hard. Um, I, I think what the Tigers saw, they saw a really good bat. They saw a guy who at a young age has a good feel for the plate. He has good bat to ball skills. I think he's essentially still just tapping into his power. He began pulling the ball a little bit more last year and really got good results. When he first came up through the system, he would almost close himself off. He would look to go the other way almost too much. 
but it's an advanced bat, a bat that I think is going to play to some degree at the major league level, whether he becomes a star, uh, we will see, but you know, the Tigers offered him what's ultimately a team friendly deal and Colt Keith, uh, t- took the money while it was there, chose security yeah. for his family. I think it's an interesting contract in part because what he's ultimately worth on the market in six years could depend on what position he's playing. And yeah. I don't know that we have any idea. He's likely to start this year as the Tigers opening day second baseman. That's really where they seem committed to having him play. But Cole Keith is a big dude. He looks more like a tight end or a linebacker than a second baseman to me. Just watching his actions in the early days of spring training, I do think he's moving more fluidly than he was even a year ago when he was playing primarily third base. Uh, But you can tell he doesn't have a lot of experience turning double plays. His feet can get a little clunky around the bag. We haven't really seen his range tested. I've always thought Cole Keith looked more like a first baseman. Maybe he could even succeed in the corner outfield. I've never been big on his skills in the infield, particularly as a middle infielder. And you would think that's only going to get harder as he ages. So there are some serious questions. I'll just say I am not confident about his long-term future at second base. Well, we're getting into peak extension season, tends to be mid-late spring when a flurry of those extensions get signed. So I wonder whether you think there are any other candidates we can talk, of course, about the state of the careers of Torkelson and Green and Scoople, et cetera. But do you think there are ongoing conversations? Are there other players who should be extension candidates for the Tigers? I think maybe a couple of these ideas have been broached, but ultimately probably a little bit too early for both the team and the player. I think your two best candidates are probably Riley Green and Tarek Skubal. Riley Green has shown he has sky-high potential. He hit over 350 for a prolonged stretch last year, but he's been injured a lot. So the Tigers have to ask themselves, do we want to commit to this guy? And if you're Riley Green, I think you want to continue to establish a a higher ceiling uh, before you were to begin negotiating such a deal. Tarek Skubal, again, really high ceiling, has been hurt a lot. Um, Still a little more to prove, I think, both for the team and Tarek Skubal is a Scott Boris client. I think Scott Boris would likely tell him, hey, go out there, try to win a Cy Young award. Then maybe we'll we'll take a look at things and we still probably won't do an extension. Uh, same, th- same thing with Spencer Torkelson coming off a good year. But when you really look at it metrically, probably not all that valuable in terms of dollars. Torkelson also a Boris client. So although I think there's some conversations that could continue to evolve over the next year or two, I would be surprised if anything actually gets done, at least with anyone currently on the Major League roster. And what about some of the guys who are behind Scoobal in the rotation? Detroit obviously brought in Jack Flaherty and Kenta Maeda uh, this offseason. You have a, a young contingent of guys behind them who have been at various points ineffective or injured. So what do you make of this rotation as a whole? And then beyond the five that are sort of projected to be in the opening day starting rotation, who are some of the young guys who Detroit's you know potentially going to lean on in the event of an injury or underperformance? Yeah, I mean, I think bringing Kinta Maeda was a good addition. He misses a lot of bats, has a really nasty splitter. He's been proven at the major league level that he can have some success. Jack Flaherty, in my mind, a little bit more of a flyer. Obviously, reached some pretty high highs with the Cardinals, but it's been a little bit of a bumpy road since. The Tigers clearly think they can help him out, think they can optimize his performance, and all those fancy front office words we hear a lot 
whether it can actually happen, I think very much remains to be seen. In my mind, the, the X factor for this rotation is Casey Mize, the former number one overall pick. Yeah. who has missed the vast majority of the past two years after Tommy John surgery and a separate, mostly unknown back procedure. So can Mize recapture the the hype that once surrounded him as a number one overall pick? I think it's tough to know where to set expectations. Uh, he's only really had one full season in the major leagues. That was 2021. He surpassed 150 innings, made 30 starts, 3-7-1 ERA. He was pretty good, uh, didn't miss a lot of bats, still had signs of a pitcher developing in the big leagues. So after missing all this time, what can he be? Will the injuries affect him? Or could we see a better version of Casey Mize, given that he is actually fully healthy for the first time in years? Um, I think that's probably the most interesting question. And you have some other young, talented guys, such as Reese Olsen, who had a really strong finish to last year. Fastball really plays at this level. Matt Manning, another former top prospect whose fastball plays, but he's struggled to hone the rest of his arsenal. You know, I think those two guys could be a big year for both of them to kind of prove what they can really be. And there's there's kind of a, a good amount of depth in young pitching. Other starters such as Sawyer Gibson Long and some kind of swing man types in Joey Wentz, Bo Brisky, Alex Fajardo. Uh, I, I feel like I'm probably forgetting someone here. But the good news, although it's a lot of young, mostly unproven pitchers, I, I think the Tigers do feel good about their depth and, and kind of the length they have, whether it be guys who end up starting or in the bullpen. Well, speaking of setting expectations and hype, Tarek Skubal was literally the most valuable pitcher in baseball after he returned. He made his season debut on July 4th, and Fangraphs war-wise, no pitcher was more valuable than he was. Not Spencer Strider, not Garrett Cole, not Tyler Glass now from July 4th on. So should we be talking about Skubal as on the short list of the best pitchers in baseball? Is that getting ahead of ourselves? Is he about to enter the echelon of ace? I, I think it's certainly possible. I've been really high on Skubal since he was in double A. He came up alongside Mize and Manning, who were more highly touted, who were first round picks. Skubal was a ninth round pick, who were higher ranked on prospect lists initially. And back in 2019, I had people telling me, the best of the bunch is Scooble. And based on what we've seen so far, it appears those people were correct. When he's been healthy, he's had success at the major league level. His stuff just really passes the eye test. He can generate strikeouts. Obviously, he has to A, stay healthy, and B, probably continue to refine a few things to really achieve that ace status. But to me, he has the looks of a guy who who is absolutely capable to do just that. Uh, I think he's already become one of the best left-handed starters in the American League this year is about proving he can take that to a new level. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily getting ahead of ourselves to at least be throwing out this conversation. And then another young pitcher I want to ask about who I don't think we're particularly likely to see in 2024, but I guess he could force the question is Jackson Job, who I know dealt with a, a number of injuries last year, but looked really, really good in the fall league when I saw him. So what's the latest on Job and sort of what do you anticipate his 2024 trajectory looking like? Yeah, he's kind of been the talk of spring training. You talk about another guy, just sheer eye test. Uh, he makes you stop in your tracks and watch watch him yeah. if he's just throwing <laughs> a bullpen or a side session. I think the good news, after a little bit of a rough start to his pro career, he made some big strides last year using his fastball, throwing it for strikes more. He's altered 
his breaking ball. He has added a cutter, kind of trying to hone the change up. Like I think he learned a lot about pitch usage and how to attack hitters and being a smarter pitcher and really put it into practice. This year is kind of about making some of those smaller refinements, and I think that will probably determine that and other rotational health at the major league level will determine if he can make his big league debut. Based on what we saw in the fall league, what we've seen so far this spring, I don't think that's out of the question. He's throwing right now like a guy who could force the issue. At the same time, I think we know these things, especially with young pitchers, don't always go as smoothly as we might expect. Yeah. So, you know, he, he has a lot to prove. I would assume he probably starts in double A, but he could get bumped up to triple A pretty quickly. And then it's a matter of performance and health at the major league level, but his stock has risen really rapidly over the past just six months or so. Well, there's a certain symmetry. I don't know if it's a pleasing symmetry for Tigers fans, but the Tigers rotation is projected to be 22nd best in Fangrass War, and the Tigers bullpen is projected to be 22nd best in Fangrass War. So we have sort of walked through the rotation here. Can you make a case that those projections are underrating either unit or both? How do you size up the bullpen? Yeah, that's interesting. Sometimes the projections uh, can can be a cold splash of water. I think <laughs> around around Lakeland, the Tigers view the bullpen as probably the strength of their team. They had some relievers who did some really good things last year in an Alex Lang, a Jason Foley. Tyler Holton was one of the best relief pitchers in all of baseball, a guy they got off waivers from the Diamondbacks last year. Yeah, not to interrupt. I'm just I'm tickled by the sequence of transactions that Tyler Holton has been involved <laughs> in with the Tigers here. Right, because they had Andrew Chafin in 2022. Then he became a free agent. He went to the Diamondbacks. Meanwhile, the Tigers plucked Holton away off waivers from the Diamondbacks. And Holton was way better for the Tigers than Chafin was for the Diamondbacks. And then they traded him to the Brewers, and he was even worse after that. Holton, by baseball reference war, was the second most valuable Tigers pitcher last year, just behind Eduardo Rodriguez. And now the kicker, the capper, is that Andrew Chafin is a Tiger again. <laughs> so yeah, it's just kind right. of come full circle. I just I had to point out my love of the Tyler Holton, <laughs> Andrew Chafin <laughs> trade tree, waiver tree, siding tree, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah, and, and look, I think that's one of the reasons the Tigers internally feel really good about their bullpen. Chafin's coming off a rough year last year, but he was very good for the Tigers two seasons ago. He's been good for most of his career. Instead of just having one legitimate lefty option, they think they have two right now. A.J. Hinch gets pretty creative in uh, mixing and matching and deploying his bullpen. So really interested to see how he throws Holton and Chafin out there. I think he's excited to have another, in theory, dependable left-hander in addition to some power relievers in Alex Lang, Foley, who gets you know elite ground ball rates, a really good sinker guy. Back into their bullpen, there are a couple spots up for the taking, but they also added Shelby Miller, who had a terrific year last year with the Dodgers, has kind of rejuvenated his career, largely in part uh, because he added a splitter that he had a lot of success with. So, I mean, the Tigers think they, they have a deep bullpen um, just based on sheer numbers. Maybe a guy like Alex Lang doesn't pop as much, but when he's in the strike zone, he can be dominant. Uh, his curveball can be one of the most lethal pitches in baseball. I, I think the optionality there is is why the Tigers feel good. Like They think they have good relievers, and they think they have a lot of them. I would not be shocked if, they, if the bullpen ends up ranking higher than 22nd. 
the rotation, although I think there's some good things going, you know, I could see it being more in that range just because you have a lot of unproven guys. You have a lot of guys coming off injury. So there's some things to sort out, even though on paper, I think the makeup of their rotation looks okay. When you dive a little deeper into the numbers, you can see some reason for concern. I don't want to belabor how underwhelming Javier Baez's first two seasons in Detroit have been because that point has probably been made ad nauseum, but they haven't been great. He did have a pretty good year in the field, at least per the advanced stats, but a 61 WRC plus isn't what you want to see. I know that he's talked about having back issues and core issues, but do you see any potential for a, a substantive turnaround for him at the plate? Because this is maybe not a particularly tenable situation as it's currently constituted. Yeah, Baez has kind of been a, a mystery wrapped in an enigma since he's been in Detroit. I don't think there are really hopes for a massive turnaround. They tried to alter his offseason program. You know, We learned that he was dealing with some level of back issues, although that's a little bit vague. So maybe there's a, like, it's like, can you really get worse than a 61 WRC plus, I guess is the question. Maybe it's possible. And if so, that's really, really bad because there are four more years left on this guy's deal. I think that the Tigers are hoping for a little more power, maybe 20 home runs and continued plus defense. And then you just live with the fact that he, you know, he might still be a sub 100, sub 90 WRC plus hitter. But if you can get a little more power at the shortstop position and good defense, you could also be doing a lot worse there. It's not a great situation. That contract is not looking great at all right now. But I guess that's the question. Like, is there nowhere to go but up? Yeah, it's interesting because you thought, you know, or at least I did coming off his 2021 where he had a 33, almost 34% strikeout rate. It's like, okay, where's the where's the pitfall going to come? And he's actually brought his strikeout rate down, but yeah. this has not been good. <laughs> That's kind of the interesting thing. Last year was the lowest strikeout rate, I believe, of his career, at least for a full season. Yeah. And it didn't help him, It you no. know, because the power also went away. He's not catching up to fastballs anymore. He's really not showing any signs of being the the dangerous hitter that he once was. So let's talk about the strides that Torkelson and Green made. They both made improvements, major improvements. It wasn't really a linear improvement. Torkelson was significantly better post-All-Star break than pre-All-Star break. Green had some months where he struggled and some months where he was one of the best hitters in baseball. And then, of course, had Tommy John surgery in September. So he's had trouble staying healthy consistently. But when he was healthy, he raked. So break down those two seasons. How encouraging should they be for Tigers fans and how much more room for growth is there? Yeah, for Torkelson, it was actually a pretty distinct turnaround um, after a long period of struggles early in his career to the point, of course, you had people throwing around the word bust. And then suddenly that power started to emerge. Torkelson had had, I, I think his timing had just been off. It was almost difficult to figure out. Um, he would get center cut pitches and just not hit them or foul them back. It seemed to be repeated. That's anecdotal, but that's sure what it felt like. And then suddenly he started getting getting to the fastballs a little better, started pulling the ball a little more, and balls started leaving the yard in pretty big numbers, finishes with 31 home runs. Uh, so that power that got him drafted number one overall is still there. I think that was important for the Tigers to figure out. The next step is to become a little bit more of a complete hitter, to draw some more walks, to get that one base percentage up a little bit. 
Internally, the Tigers will tell you they still love Torkelson's ability to cover the entire plate, cover multiple pitches, hit the ball to all fields. So uh, we, we will see if he can take that next step. Green, I think, has had, like you said, there were stretches, a prolonged stretch last summer where he was one of the best hitters uh, in baseball. We haven't really seen his power at the major league level as much. His rookie year uh, really struggled with rolling over to second a lot. I think he tried to alter his bat path a little bit, but it's also been a lot about pitch selection for Riley Green. That's something A.J. Hinch and the Tigers hitting coaches have really harped on not getting overly aggressive at the plate. There's a little more swing and miss in his game than maybe some people thought in the minor leagues. Uh, he can do really good things when he stays within his approach and, and gets a good pitch to drive. Uh, but the next step for him too, I think, is continuing to make sure that bat stays on plane and that he can drive the ball in the air a little bit more consistently. Just yesterday, the Tigers brought in Gio Urshela, presumably to play third base. Urshela is a, a fine veteran. It's a one-year, $1.5 million deal, but I'm I'm mostly interested in what it might mean for the timeline of Jace Young and his promotion to the big leagues. Yeah, I think tough to know. You know, Jace Young was never going to open with this team, but I think in an ideal world, he certainly will finish with this team. You know, the signing of Ur- Urshela seems like a little bit more of uh, just a buffer. It, it is a one-year deal. As it stood, the Tigers were going to be pretty weak at third base. It was going to be a combination of Matt Veerling and Andy Abanez and Zach McKinstry. So a lot of platooning and a lot of mixing and matching. And honestly, it'll probably still that be that way even after the addition of Urshela. Maybe there will be a little more stability there, especially against left-handed pitching. But uh, this is a team that is really getting an identity for mixing and matching. I think pinch hit the fifth most of any team in the league last year. So I don't necessarily think Urshela blocks Jace Young in all that profound of a way Jace Young hits uh, left-handed, whereas Urshela is a righty. If Jace Young has a good year in the minors, he could still get up there, and maybe it's someone else who loses that roster spot. I don't really think it affects his developmental timeline a ton. Are there any other interesting roster battles in the spring? I know Keston Hura is in camp on a minor league deal after having been in the minors all of last year, though his bat bounced back there. Elsewhere in the bench, elsewhere in the lineup, anywhere that's still sort of up in the air? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things. I think the last bench spot is a little bit up for grabs, and Urshela really makes the path to the roster tougher for a guy like Justin Henry Malloy, who is a pretty well-thought-of prospect dominated all last year in AAA, has you know really good plate discipline. I believe he had over a 401 base percentage all last season in AAA, never got up to the big leagues. And it's largely because he doesn't have a position. Tigers tried him at third base, and then they tried him at third base again, and it just didn't hold. He's now working only in the outfield, but there's not really a spot for him on the roster as an outfield only, really a guy who right now is profiling more as a DH. But he has the bat. He has the offensive potential that I think you would like to see in the major leagues, especially for a team like the Tigers that could struggle to score runs. So that's one of the questions. Is there any way to get this guy on the roster and and see what his bat can do in the big leagues? Right now, I think it's unlikely he breaks with a major league team unless there's an injury. And then in the rotation, the Tigers have six starters. Will they all head north? Will uh, someone like Matt Manning potentially get option. Will one of them start in the bullpen? Will they utilize tandem starts? It seems like a classic spring training the debate that can be solved as soon as someone develops, you know, forearm discomfort or something like that. Hmm. 
but right now, I don't think there's a clear answer on exactly what the Tigers are planning to do with these six starters. What is your sense of where Detroit sees itself in the competitive landscape that is the AL Central? Because, you know, there's a, a version of this question where they are still dependent on young guys in the rotation, where they have some stopgap starters, both in the rotation and in their lineup. But also, they have a lot of exciting young players. They have more exciting young players on the way. They continue to play in the AL Central. So where do they sort of understand themselves relative to their division competition? Yeah, I, I think teams tell you a lot more with their actions than their words. So if you look at what the Tigers did this offseason, they took some steps to strengthen the roster, brought in a guy like Mark Canna and Kinta Maeda. I think they have intentions of being competitive, knowing the division is somewhat up for the taking. At the same time, they were far from ultra-aggressive, right? Um, they didn't make meaningful steps to plug the gap at third base. You know, it's Gio, Gio Urshela instead of Matt Chapman. It's Kinta Maeda and Jack Flaherty instead of Sonny Gray or some of the, those top-end guys on the pitching market. Part of that might be Scott Harris not wanting to commit to long-term deals, but I think some of it also tells you where they feel like they are at in their competitive window. I think, you know, they they hope they can be a young team that exceeds expectations this year. But if you really look at how they're constructing this roster, it seems like they're another year or two away from really quote unquote going for it. But at the same time, I think they're they're glad they're in the AL Central rather than the AL East, right? Yeah. Uh, if you talk to people close to Scott Harris, they'll tell you that played some role in him taking the Tigers job and seeing that as a good opportunity. This thing's up for the taking, but you know it seems more like the Tigers are trying to finesse their way to winning the division versus outright staking their claim right now. You mentioned Scott Harris. I was going to say this is subjective, but this is my impression that the Tigers might have the most anonymous GM-Pobo combo in baseball. <laughs> if you were to just survey generic baseball fans, uh, can you identify the top executives of this team? I feel like the Tigers would be toward the bottom of the list, which is not necessarily an indictment of their executives. It might just be a product of the fact that they're both fairly recently hired, especially Greenberg, who was just appointed to that position in December. They're first timers in their current roles. Greenberg was in hockey in the NHL, the Blackhawks most recently before he joined the Tigers and I don't know their names are Scott Harris and Jeff Greenberg <laughs> and, and they, they weren't former players or anything that sets them apart so how would you characterize them or the Tigers front office in general and what if anything have they done under the hood behind the scenes on an organizational level that might not be obvious on the surface yeah, you're not entirely wrong. If you saw these guys at a, a restaurant or a bar, they look like any <laughs> other guys in their in their mid thirties, you know. Um, so other than the the quarter zip and the Lululemon <laughs> pants, there's nothing truly giving them away as front office executives. Yeah. <laughs> at the same time, you know, I think there was a little bit of an adjustment period when Scott Harris took over. There have been some moves like the Eduardo Rodriguez trade deadline debacle that did not necessarily reflect well on him. But this organization, I think, has got a lot more healthy in just a little more than a year since Harris uh, replaced Al Avila. There's just a, a different level of emphasis on the types of players they're bringing in, on the ways they're looking to develop players internally, including at the major league level. If you talk to players, they'll they'll tell you how well-versed Harris is in data, but also in a way where it seems like he can relate 
to players a little bit. Like I think the feedback internally has been really positive. I think the Tigers are probably as healthy organizationally as, as they've been in a long time. It was a really good year for their farm system. Went from being ranked in the bottom third to the top third. Had a lot of guys like a Parker Meadows, like a Jackson Job, lesser-known prospects like Brant Herter, really improved and put themselves on the major league radar. So I think those are, are signs, you know, so far so good. The tougher questions always come when you're trying to build a winner at the major league level. So I think it's a little too early to make a strong evaluation. But at the same time, you can see that that things have improved under the hood in this organization. What about ownership? So when this team turns the corner, if it hasn't already, what's the ceiling in terms of payroll? Will Chris Illich ever pony up the way that his dad did? I think that the Tigers are eighth lowest in payroll right now. Obviously, they're either still rebuilding or coming out of a rebuild or a second consecutive rebuild without contention in between. It's kind of hard to classify, but do you think that he will eventually rise to the occasion when the team is ready for that? Yeah, uh, it was kind of a rebuild, rebooted. Um, it's weird yeah. because just two years ago, the Tigers thought they were turning the corner. And although they didn't want to shell out more than $300 million for Carlos Correa, they spent pretty significantly on Eduardo Rodriguez and on Javier Baez. The Baez contract not looking so good right now. So, you know, spending only works if you spend wisely. I don't think Chris Illich is ever going to spend like his father did in in the 2010s when the Tigers were spending, you know, outspending their market size. I don't see the Tigers exceeding the luxury tax under Chris Illich. I do see the the payroll jolting up in another year or two, especially with Miguel Cabrera off the books. Um, there's room to add to this payroll. I think they could pursue. Um, a bigger hitter in Alex Bregman type in free agency next year. It just seems like it would make a lot of sense. But I do think there will be certain fiscal limitations on, on just high, how high they are willing to uh, to bump that payroll in the future. All right. So our final question, what would constitute a successful season for the Detroit Tigers in 2024, either holistically at all levels, at the major league level? What should they be aiming for? What should Tigers fans consider the standard of success? Yeah, I think for the past five years, the answer to that question has been progress. Just make progress. Just show you're heading in the right direction. And there have been a couple years uh, like last season where they did that. There were other seasons like 2022 where they took a step backward. Uh, I think it's time to get away from the progress. I think you won 78 games last year. I think the goal needs to be to to play 500 or above and be competitive late into the season. It's probably asking a lot for the Tigers to win the Central and be a playoff team this year. Um, but I, I think the definition of progress now is showing you can seriously contend in this division. And if you can win 81 plus games in this in the in the weekend Dale Central, you have a chance to be in that mix. So that that's where I would set the bar. All right. Well, we can see whether the Tigers clear it by following Cody's coverage at The Athletic and also on the optimistically named, but perhaps not over optimistically named Turning the Corner podcast. Cody, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. 
All right. Some of you may remember that last year's team preview series started off with Aaron Gleeman and Grant Brisby on the Twins and the Giants, respectively. It just so happened that this was supposed to be a Twins-Giants episode. So for any Giants fans freaking out about the fact that the Tigers came first, that was not the way the projections had it. Grant was in transit when we were recording this episode, so we moved back the Giants segment because, again, the order doesn't matter that much. What does matter is getting Grant on the podcast. So we will soon. And today we had an AL Central twofer. That will do it for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening, and thanks to those of you who support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Jim H., Chris, Mike Platt, Samuel Giddens, and Jonathan Miller. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, monthly bonus episodes, playoff live streams, prioritized email answers, discounts on merch and ad-free fancrafts memberships, and so much more. Check out all the offerings at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. If not, never fear. You can continue to contact us via email. Send your questions and comments to podcast at fangraphs.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we'll be back to talk to you next week. For now, we will leave you after the outro theme with some outtakes from our Twins preview, because recording preview segments with writers who are covering teams at spring training, it's always an adventure. covers the twins for The Athletic and, of course, the Gleeman and Geek podcast, and he always joins us to preview the twin season. It's always a pleasure. Hello, Aaron. Hello. Thank you. Oh, my God. Oh, Oh, no. Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay, well, this is laughable now. (laughs) I hope that's not a fire alarm or anything. That was a fire alarm, but it's Do you have to vacate the premises? (laughs) It's false alarm? Now I feel we're being... with <laughs> by God or first your um, mic not a fire alarm but that's okay yeah, this will uh, be a fun outtake for the end of the episode <laughs> okay alright it appears to have stopped okay um, let us know if you start uh, burning or man, this <laughs> anything is, starts smoking in your vicinity this is just a sign that you guys need a new twins guest next year <laughs> this is I've ru- I have run my course <laughs> that tells me it's not just this season and it's not just about TV uh, and it's just uh <laughs> it, is, it is a bad situation, much like my attempt to record this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, it stopped again. All right. You should evacuate if you need to, <laughs> if you to need be to, clear. Yeah. We do oh, not expect God. you to die in service of effectively walking. Honestly, I'm afraid to like leave the hotel now because what if this is like a final destination situation <laughs> where like I'm just doomed all day to do things? <laughs> I'm told they're just checking the alarms. (laughs) Well, it seems like they work.
It's not like some other divisions where you have someone who's spending a ton and then that sort of forces or puts pressure on their competitors. To spend. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, uh, with Buxton, I would say this is the most upbeat he's been from an injury standpoint in years. <laughs> Did you like how I rushed that last answer? <laughs> yeah, he just squeezed it in there. You're getting good at this now. <laughs> All right, I'll give it one more shot. <laughs> this is going to be, your editor's going to have a hell of a time with this one. <laughs> yeah. They're going to earn their money on this one.